The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. And today we're talking about um, starting over. In the context of marriage and relationships, we're going to be talking about divorce uh, today. And it turns out there's not very many good hymns of the faith that speak about that. And so we borrowed that song from, uh, from a, um, a very recent modern group of musicians. Uh, and I think it sets up our topic uh, really well. And so divorce is not a particularly peaceful topic. Uh, but we want you to give... Uh, you want to give you a chance to speak peace into each other's lives. And so before we dive in, why don't you pass the peace to each other, either using the traditional greeting, peace of Christ be with you, traditional response, and also with you, or just um, with a friendly handshake or a look. Um, and if you are here with kids who would like to participate in our classroom uh, time that, at the other end of the building, you can do that. That happens during our sermon time, and so you need to take them down there beforehand and pick them up afterward. Uh, it's for kids aged 3 to 10. And uh, if you are somebody who uses our quiet room and noticed that it didn't have any volume, any audio in it last week, we have fixed that. So if you have real little ones and you need a space to be with them, that you'd like, but you'd just like to hear the sermon, you can use the quiet room, which is just outside the hallway there. Um, but uh, stand up and say hello to one another and pass the peace. You have just about enough time to go say hello to somebody that you've never met before and then find your seat and we'll get underway.
As I mentioned a moment ago, today's topic in our marriage and relationship series is divorce. And um, this is a tough one to talk about, and it may be a tough one to hear about as well. And so if you uh, haven't caught the earlier messages in this series, I would strongly encourage you to do that. If you're just coming in today and you think, oh man, I walked in the door and they're shouting about divorce, um, <laughs> you know, give us a little, give us a little grace. Um, you can find the other messages on our website. If you go to artisanchurch.com slash media, you can learn how to subscribe to our podcast feed and uh, you can get all the messages that we've uh, really probably ever preached, but certainly the last three about marriage and relationships. We started out with talking about the biblical basis, and then we talked about some myths and misconceptions, and then last week we talked about common conflict in marriage. Today we're talking about divorce. So I want to give just a couple of brief disclaimers before we start um, in on the topic. The first is that we know, we're aware of the fact that there are uh, two audiences in the room that will hear this message, people who have never been divorced and people who have been divorced. And we know, we just want to say at the outset, we know that, those, that that's the case. And so we are going to speak, we hope, with grace and, and care and concern for uh, all of you, regardless of what your experience may have been. And um, it will always be our, our teaching here at Artisan that we, that we uh, treat each other with care and grace. And so that's something that, that we expect of you uh, as well when, you're, when we're talking about things like this. And the second one is we're... We're not going to have a particularly favorable view of divorce. We'll, we'll get into—I mean—we'll get into a lot of detail here. Um, but there's one thing that we make, want to make sure at the outset that you don't hear. If you're a person who's in an abusive or dangerous relationship, a lot of times teaching, particularly maybe from within the church, um, that's that's not favorable toward divorce, gives you a reason to stay in a relationship that's harmful to you. And we do not want to give you a reason to stay in a relationship that's harmful to you. If you feel like you're in danger in a relationship, uh, if there's violence in your house, you are within every type of right, physical, practical, spiritual, religious, and otherwise, to get out of that situation. So even when we're saying some hard things about divorce, we want you to have that in the back of your head because we would really be, it would be um, an awful thing if you, if you heard the opposite from us. Um, so to start us off today, I'm going to introduce Chrissy again. It's been such a great um, help and blessing to me and to all of you I know to have Chrissy involved with this series. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Thank you, Chrissy. If you haven't met Chrissy before, uh, Chrissy is, um, she's got a lot to say about this topic. Chrissy has master's degrees in social work and in clinical psychology She's also pursuing a Ph.D. in clinical psychology with a special emphasis on romantic relationships. And she's done lots and lots of research during her academic career. She's done some counseling as well. So Chrissy speaks to these topics uh, from a perspective that I simply don't have. Um, and so I've been really grateful uh, to her. And she and Jonathan actually are also coordinating our marriage course, which a number of you were involved in this past week when it started up. And it's not too late to get involved in if you if you're interested, by the way. Talk to Chrissy or to Jonathan afterward. Um, but thank you to both of you for your involvement in this series and in, and in your investment in the, in the marriages and relationships that are here at Artisan. Uh, and so I'll turn it over to Chrissy to start us off. Okay, um, I'm going to start us off with prayer, actually. So if you guys would bow your heads with me. 
God, we just come before you and we want to recognize, first of all, that this is a difficult topic. And so I ask for your grace and your restoration and your love to, to flow through this message today. Um, I pray specifically that Scott and I would, would offer hope and peace and restoration and that we would not add further injury or wounding to those um, in the room who've been hurt by divorce. I pray that, Lord, you would help the people in this room to not feel like we're taking this issue lightly. And um, that your words would be communicated today and the messages that you want people to get would be heard. Thank you for being a loving, restoring, and forgiving God. And Lord, I just pray that that aspect of your beautiful spirit would be present today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this message that uh, we're going to give today actually starts off being a little bit tougher. Um, but it gets better. So I really want to encourage you guys to hang in there with us. Um, avoid the temptation to pretend that you're going to the bathroom so that you can slip out the back. Um, because you'll miss the good part at the end. So just hang in there with us. Because um, it'll get better. <laughs> Uh, so first, I just want to say that, you know, obviously, obviously in this series and also in church circles in general, divorce is kind of generally spoken of as a bad thing, as something that you want to avoid or that people want to avoid. And um, kind of in a, in a more general sense, like, oh, yeah, it's bad, it's bad, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do this. Um, but the tendency, again, may be with this to think, like I've talked about in previous weeks and myths, oh, well, that doesn't really apply to me or... You know, I can I can beat this, or you know, my marriage is so bad that the divorce has to, divorce has to be better than this. Um, so I thought it might be helpful to give you guys some specifics on what the research says about divorce, on how it affects people, um, so that you have something specific to go by instead of sort of a general feeling. So at least in the short term, in the first one to two years after divorce, it generally gets worse. Um, so. Instead of feeling better, you feel worse. Um, people report feeling less happy, um, feeling more depressed. Uh, they have a worse sense of themselves. Um, they actually even have more physical health problems. There's a higher suicide rate. There's a higher homicide rate. There's a higher mortality rate. Um, people can tend to use alcohol and substances more, which makes sense um, given how difficult it is. There's more social isolation. And there's also a lot more economic hardship, particularly for women. Um, this happens because the idea is that a lot of times women uh, in, in families, maybe either they're not working because they've stayed home to have kids, or they, um, they have gone back to work, but they've had to take time off in order to have kids, and so they're just not as far along in their careers as men have had the time to be. So it's harder for women afterwards in terms of finances. Um, there are a few positives, things like people report feeling greater autonomy, um, more personal growth, and improved social lives. And those things are, are to be expected because maybe you're out in the social scene more or you're not with your, your ex anymore, and so those things would get better. Um, in the short term, again, the first one to two years after divorce, it's also generally harder on families. Um, parents say that they have more difficulties raising kids. They feel more strain raising their kids. Um, and kids also in that first one to two years are associated with things like not doing as well in school, 
They have um, more difficulty socially, more difficulty adjusting, more behavior problems. They also feel worse about themselves. They have higher rates of depression and withdrawal, and they also kids can also have more health problems after divorce. Um, now, in the long term, research is more unclear. So some findings say, okay, these, these bad outcomes, they remain for years and years. And then other research says, no, no, actually people stabilize and they get better. So it's unclear how it, it, it really is unclear how it happens in the long term. Um, but the short term, just that, that is the clear point. So I, I think that's the easiest to talk about. It's just that it, it generally gets worse in the first one to two years after divorce. Um, so why am I telling you this? I'm not trying to just be a downer <laughs> and discourage you. But I'm speaking to that first group of people that Scott talked about, the people who are still married and who are considering divorce, who are thinking that things are really difficult and it might just be easier to get out. Um, and if that's where you are, then I would suggest that it probably makes sense to exhaust all your options first. Generally, couples who have exhausted all of their options first and then choose divorce actually feel a little bit better about it. Um, and what I mean in terms of exhausting options, the things I would suggest if you're in that first category are considering working on your relationship through therapy, um, taking a lot of time to make the decision before you choose to divorce. So that could be things like setting aside specific meetings or times to do it, not just kind of doing it over dinner. Um, it could also, um, what I also mean by that is using conflict communication skills like the ones I talked about last week when you talk about conflict and divorce, if you're considering it. Um, and it may also be helpful to do things like um, declaring a moratorium on talks about divorce. So try something new for a couple of months. Maybe that means someone gets a part-time job or someone changes um, you know, something about the situation. Try that for a couple of months. See how it helps or how it doesn't. See what happens and then talk about it again. Um, and then the final thing is you could try separation for a while and just see how it affects you and what you think. So clinically, that's the, those are the more negative sides. Okay, so the message seems fairly clear from, from uh, clinical research that divorce is harmful. Um, but we are, we are people who don't only care about that. We also care a great deal, hopefully, about what the Bible says about divorce and you can probably guess, if you have ever had any kind of exposure to the Bible or the people who claim it to be their book, what the Bible says about divorce. The Bible is not generally in favor of divorce. Um, if, if I had to ask you, Bible, divorce, thumbs up or thumbs down, and, and pull the room, everybody would be going like this with a thumb down, right? We, we all know that somewhat. Um, but I want to show you a few of the passages that are most commonly used to talk about divorce within the church and look a little bit more closely at them. And uh, not to spoil the surprise, but I, I'm not going to turn these on their head and, and try to make you believe that the Bible thinks divorce is perfectly fine and there's no consequences to it. But I do want to look a little more deeply at some of these passages and, and talk about how they're used and, and how we ought to use them. So probably the most famous one-liner in the Bible about divorce comes from the book of Malachi, which is... it's the last book in the Old Testament. If you'd like to follow along, you can find the particular verse I'm talking about in the Red Bibles under your chairs on page 778. Um, but it's Malachi 2.16, and it starts out with these seven words. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. Right? Now, how many of you have heard this 
phrase. I hate divorce, says God. It's usually said in an all-caps kind of voice, right? When somebody's quoting this verse, Malachi 2.16. Maybe a friend has shared this passage with you. When you've said, man, things are really bad and I'm just not sure if we're going to make it. Well, you know God hates divorce, right? Asterisk and anybody who ever had one, right? And this is, I mean, this is kind of, this, this is kind of the way it looks, But you know me, I'm never going to let you just look at one verse in the Bible, right? You've been around here long enough, and even if you've only been here 40 minutes, you're about to have been here long enough to know that I'm not going to let you do that. (laughs) So let's look back, uh, just a few verses. Let me just indulge me to ask you to look back uh, to verse 13 to see how this starts out, all right? This This is the voice of the Lord through the prophet saying, and this you do well. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. You ask, why does he not? And here's why the Lord doesn't accept the offering of these particular people. Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did not one God make her? Both flesh and spirit are his. And what does the one God desire? Godly offspring. So look to yourselves and do not let anyone be faithless to the wife of his youth. Why? For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. So if we back up just a few verses in this context, it's, it's yes, God hates divorce. God does not want you to get divorced. But what is the, what's the context in which this divorce is being raised as an issue? Being faithless. And it actually, you know, in this particular part of the Bible, it's a, it's a husband, being, husband being faithless to the wife of his youth. You know, you can almost picture him in the Miata, right? <laughs> With the wind blowing his toupee back as he has a midlife crisis and wants to go date a 19-year-old, right? God does not want to let you do that, <laughs> So God hates divorce. Defining divorce as a consequence of somebody's unfaithfulness or faithlessness. And then that has a spiritual consequence, and we see that in this, in this little passage here. So that adds a little bit of context, doesn't it? Doesn't that make it a little bit easier to take that all caps exclamation, I hate divorce? Let's go even a little bit further back to verse 11, because we may uncover something even more interesting here. Judah, as the nation, has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. That's an interesting way to say that he's practicing idolatry. Married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob anyone who does this, any to witness or answer to bring an offering to the Lord of hosts, and then the offering transitions us into that next verse, which is talking about the offerings that God does not want to accept. So if you back it up to verse 11, you begin to think, maybe this passage isn't actually about marriage at all. Maybe marriage is the metaphor, the, the, the framework for this allegory that God is painting through the prophet Malachi of the unfaithfulness of his people. 
And very often in the Bible, marriage is used as a metaphor for the relationship between God and his people, whether it's uh, God marrying, God being married as, as the bridegroom to Israel and Israel being faithless. And, and there's some fairly graphic language in certain parts of the Bible um, about that, the nature of that faithlessness that the people of Israel have. Or sometimes later you see marriage uh, used as a way to describe the relationship between Christ and his church. And in the first week in the biblical basis we talked about, uh, we, we used a passage, Ephesians 5, has lots of different guidelines for marriage. And yes, I think they're guidelines for marriage, but then at the very end of that discourse, Paul says this is a very, you know, it's a great important topic, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. So he basically says this whole thing is, it's not just about marriage. So maybe I hate divorce means I hate the faithlessness of my people. Right? But even if you, even if you want to look at it, Purely literally, divorce being what happens when a man and a woman are no longer married to each other. It's really not fair to pull that one verse out of the passage, right? Um, the big, can you fire that up there again, Jason, the big I hate divorce thing? This is, this is movie poster blurb, biblical exegesis here, right? Okay. You, you ever seen that on the movie poster? <laughs> you know, where where they pull out three or four words completely out of context and then they make it really big and put an exclamation point after it. And then the critic the next day writes on his website, like, I hated this movie. <laughs> That's not at all what I meant. They just took those words and stuck them on the poster. Um, you can't do that with the Bible. It's, it's, I mean, it's not fair to Roger Ebert, but, but that, you know, it's also not fair to Almighty God, the creator of the universe. The Christian faith cannot be explained in a bumper sticker, and the Bible should not be used like a movie critic's blurb on a poster. So next I'd like to look a little bit at what Jesus taught about divorce. As, as Christians, we ought to look at the teachings of Jesus as the, the most important thing. And um, he, he taught a little in a few different places about divorce, and, and, but the, the one particular teaching that I want to look at today actually appears in three different places. It's the same story, and you probably are aware that, the, that three of the four Gospels have a great deal of overlap. We call them the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of the same stories uh, in them, just told a little differently with some different details in places because they're just the, the memories of that particular author coming out. Um, and so the, this teaching about divorce appears in... Um, Mark 10, Matthew 5, and Luke 16. I'm going to look at the Mark 10 passage, which if, if you're following along in these red Bibles is page 822. Uh, so let me read um, verses 2 through 12 of chapter 10, and then I'll make a few quick observations here. Some Pharisees came, and to test him, test Jesus, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Quoting Genesis 1.26, I think it is. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh quoting Genesis 2.24, which we looked at in the first week and a little bit in the second week. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So a few key observations about this passage. The first is that you notice that this teaching comes in response to what? The Pharisees are trying to test Jesus, which is something that they do again and again in the Gospels, and they never get it that he's just going to beat them down. He's always, always going to turn it on, their, on its head, and he's going to answer the question that they were really asking, but they didn't really ask, right? And so in response to this test, Jesus is going to just, like, let them put the noose around their own neck here. His first response is, is basically to indicate that he knows this is a trap. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Teacher, I just want to know. And he says, well, what did Moses tell you? Knowing that these are the Pharisees and they've memorized every word that Moses ever wrote down, backwards and forwards and up and down the side of their neck, right? He knows that they know what Moses taught about divorce. And now they know that he knows that they know. <laughs> and he also knows that they know that he knows. <laughs> and they say, well, Moses said that it's okay for a man to give his wife a certificate of dismissal to divorce her. They're referring to a teaching in Deuteronomy 24, which is a really interesting uh, little passage, the first four verses of that chapter, if you get a chance to look at it sometime. It basically says if a wife, if a man is, you know, married to a woman, imagine a man's married to a woman and he, and he no longer finds her suitable and he divorces her and then she goes and marries another one and he no longer finds her suitable and, and then he, he divorces her and then he, she marries another one and he no longer finds her suitable and finds a reason to dismiss her. She can't then marry the first guy because she's already been defiled. It's, it's a very kind of weird passage about divorce, but the gist of it is that the people of Israel... Apparently, we're looking for a way, maybe particularly the men who had, remember, wives who were their property, to move on, to dismiss them and to go on to the next person or thing. And because that was a problem, Moses imposed a regulation on it. He said, if you can't just kick your wife to the curb because you've already, and the language there is, defiled her. In other words, she's no longer a virgin, and you're just dismissing her, and now there's no consequence for you to go and have another wife, but she is, she's worse off than a widow now. And so there's this system that they put in place that there had to be a certificate, an official, formal act of divorcing the wife so that she could marry again. And that's what it means what Jesus means when he says, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses wrote this command for you. And then he does something really interesting. He jumps right over the law. He mentions it in passing because he knows that's the context in which they're looking for an answer. He jumps all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible, the creation story. And notice what he does here. They ask, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? And he says, yes, there's that provision in the law because of your hardness of heart. But from the very beginning, God made people, and he made them male, and he made them female. 
and the next, the thing that he didn't quote there that comes next is that in the image of God, he created them both, male and female, he created them. And so it's a great example of Jesus replacing a particular legal interpretation with a root principle. And this is, I think, what model we ought to follow when we apply the text of the Bible for anything, but including for today when we're talking about divorce. The principles, the basic theological realities that you can draw out from the Bible are where you start. When it starts to get into nitty-gritty, you still need to pay attention to that. But that's a lot more difficult to apply because, let's use this as an example. If we want to understand what divorce ought to look like for us based on a text about divorce that's 2,000 years old, we have to understand how the differences between marriage now exist between what what marriage is now and what it was 2,000 years ago. And so, in many cases, these, uh, particularly in the New Testament texts, are being applied to a culture and a legal system that's completely foreign to us. And so, whatever Paul may say about divorce in the Roman Empire has to be understood as something that he said to people who lived during the Roman Empire. And yes, we can apply that to ourselves, but not necessarily on a straight line. However, if you go back to those principles, you're going to be a lot better off. And this is exactly what Jesus does here. He's saying, that law in the Hebrew system was set up because you're a mess. But remember how it started in the Garden of Eden before the fall, before sin entered the world, male and female. He created them. And God put them together, and what God puts together, no one should separate. Now, let's talk briefly, uh, because once again, I'm running a little bit long here, um, about those last couple of verses, 10 through 12, about the adultery. Anybody's ears perk up or go, whoa, when you read that? Maybe, maybe your heart sank because somebody has bludgeoned you with this text and say, if you're going to get divorced, okay, but you can't ever get married again because you're going to be an adulterer. Well... I'll be honest, I think a plain reading of the text suggests to me that what Jesus is talking about is people who are in a a marriage relationship and then one or the other of them wants to sleep with somebody else and so they say, I'm going to get divorced and remarried. Bang, bang. That's what it seems to be talking about if you ask me. And Jesus is just not really in the business of letting you off on a technicality like that. That's adultery. Whether or not you sign this piece of paper first and sign that one second and then consummate everything, too bad. That's not how it works. But even if you take it at at a much more face value level and think that this is applying to all divorce and remarriage, which sometimes in the church is the case, and I, I did some very interesting research this week about some what different churches, you know, there's a certain type of church that will put a specific policy about divorce on its website, and I found a couple of those churches this week, and it's just, you know, oh, man. They're talking this Sunday about the goofy crap that we do, and, and, and we deserve it. I don't want to be too disparaging, but when you, when you try to anticipate every possible scenario ahead of time and say, well, if you were married before you got, you know, whatever, like the, the rules that they set up, it's this just bizarre hierarchy of understanding. Um, 
and again, it's it's trying to apply a specific principle and, and actually trying to apply it before the before there's actually an occurrence that happens to apply it to, um, which is admirable in some ways. But I would much rather start with with the basics of what Jesus actually seems to be saying about the state of marriage. And so even if you apply this and say, okay, there's there's a level of adultery that occurs any time somebody's divorced and gets remarried, um, I think if you want to interpret it that way, that's okay. But I think that that just, all that serves to do is under, underline the seriousness of the situation. Again, God does not like divorce. Uh, but I don't think it puts somebody into a perpetual state of sin for the rest of their life either. So, um, Let's move on. The last passage that I want to look at is from 1 Corinthians 7. And what happens in this passage, as a matter of fact, is Paul applying what we've just read, this particular teaching of Jesus, to his a community of faith uh, that he was a pastor to, that he was a he started this church in Corinth and had moved on. He was starting churches all over the Mediterranean basin, and he would correspond with them. And so uh, it's very clear. Actually, this is, this is a really dense chapter, 1 Corinthians 7. We, we don't have time to get into the whole thing. It, it would, we could, honestly, you could do a series on just this, this chapter about marriage. Um, it's clear from the very first verse in the chapter that what Paul is doing is responding to something that they've asked him in a letter that they wrote to him. So there's that undergirding this whole thing too. Um, So since we don't have time to look at this whole chapter in depth, I want to just look at um, one little part of it. And it's something that Paul says to people who are married to unbelievers. First thing he says, actually, is that you should try to stay together. If you, if you can live at peace with each other, if, if, you're, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, you ought to try to stay together. Uh, and then what he says in verse 15, he talks about what to do if you're a Christian married to an unbeliever and the unbelieving person separates from you. What do you do in that case? This is what he says in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister, meaning the Christian, is not bound. Why? It is to peace that God has called you. And I think, I actually hope that this verse offers reassurance to people in the room who have been divorced. Obviously, particularly people who've been in a marriage with somebody who's not a believer and that ended that it's, you, it's let that go. Let it be so. But also, I think, to, to anyone who's been divorced and did everything they could to preserve the marriage, because the unfortunate reality is that divorce can be a, enacted by one person. You may not go arm-in-arm arm to the courthouse, but you're going to show up there at one point or another and sign those papers whether you want to or not. At some point, you're out of legal options. And I think sometimes, even when both, both spouses are Christians, sometimes the, the truth of, of the matter is that one of them is not acting in a way that evidences that faith. And so maybe the same rule applies to those people. Because 
where is the fruit of a person's faith if, if that person wants to leave a marriage without serious, serious cause? What kind of faith is that person demonstrating there? And, and the person who is, is continuing to act in faith might need to say, I'm going to let it go. I'm called to peace. Sometimes there's abandonment and unfaithfulness, even when the strict definition of the word adultery can't be applied. And, and the, the, the sad, heartbreaking reality is that sometimes you have to say, I'm just going to let this go. What I'm not going to do is tell you where that point is. I'm not going to give you a specific set of rules that will help you understand when it's okay to leave when you have to say it's okay for the other person to leave. Um, there's a long history in the church, and it's not just the Pharisees, of us demanding very specific rules for what can and can't be done. And we want those for two reasons. One is so that we know exactly how far we can step before we cross that line. We want to know exactly how far we can go. What a bunch of children we are. And we want to know exactly when... We can smack somebody who stepped over the line if, we're, if it doesn't happen to be something we struggle with. Those are the only two good reasons. They're not good reasons. They're the only two reasons why we want really specific rules about what we can and can't do in our, in our faith. I'm just not going to participate in that. I don't see any evidence that Jesus ever did. So what I would like to do is extend the same grace to you as a congregation under my spiritual care that Paul appeared to be extending to his congregation in Corinth saying, do everything you can. And the, the verses that lead up to the one that I shared are, are pretty strong about why you should stay together and that you should. Do everything you can, but sometimes you can't do any more. And, and that grace will be present to you uh, if you're in that, that really awful situation. Um, as long as you're here. As long as I'm here. <laughs> Let me turn it back over to Chrissy. Okay, so I'm actually going to go into if, um, if you have divorce. So I'm speaking to the second, second group of people now and just talking about some sort of practical, I guess, advice and, and thoughts on that. Um, so people who are starting over. So as I mentioned before, um, the long-term data is kind of mixed in terms of how people do after they divorce and how families do. Um, but we do have data suggesting that there are some specific factors associated with better outcomes. And so I'm going to share those with you because if you're in this situation, you can work on those things and they can help you succeed and recover. Um, the first is having a strong social support network. So being able to have um, family and friends that you can talk to and that you can talk to about feelings and your experiences without feeling judgment or that there's specific types of advice being given to you. Um, Another is being able to have healthy, positive coping skills. So I know that this is different for everyone. Everyone has different methods of dealing with difficulty. But you know what works for you, and I'm pretty sure everybody has an idea of what is healthy and what isn't in terms of coping skills. So identify what that is for you and work on that because that can help you recover and can help you um, do better. It may also be helpful if you are connected to community services that are specifically targeted for your situation. So 
um, perhaps you have kids and um, you know they're going through the divorce with you. There may be after-school programs available or some sort of um, daycare or something like that. Something that is specific to your situation that can help you as you go through this process. And I also want to speak to people um, if you're in a relationship where there's been an affair and maybe you're still married and you're considering divorce and you know how you're going to work how you're going to work on it. A factor that's been associated with um, doing better after an affair, however hard it is, is being really open about the affair. So talking about it, being really um, honest about it, and then also talking about the attitudes and the behaviors and the events that led up to it. That uh, actually, even though it seems kind of surprising in some ways, it helps people as they go through it and, and potentially recover. Um, I also wanted to talk about a few things regarding remarriage. So people who have been divorced and now they're remarried. And so some specific um, just tips and ideas and things to think about if you're in that situation where you're remarried. Um, the first is that it's a myth to think that remarriage is going to be like your first marriage or is going to be like a first marriage, period. It's not. Because uh, you're coming in with different a different set of situations and a different background. You have the past of your previous your previous relationship. You have in-law relationships and just a whole bunch of other different things that you're bringing into your marriage with you. So adjust your expectations and don't expect it to be the same as a first marriage. I'm not saying that that means better or worse. I'm just saying it's different. Um, and although there is a higher divorce rate for higher order marriages, what I mean by that is second, third, fourth, fifth marriages, they have a higher rate of divorce or risk of divorce than first marriages. Um, in reading this week, I actually found that if remarried couples make it through their first year of marriage, their uh, probability of divorce drops to that of first marriages, which I find extremely encouraging. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um, but in other words, that I take that to mean the first year of marriage, particularly for remarried individuals, is the hardest. So work on it then. And you do the things that we've talked about in past weeks. Make a priority of your relationship. Make time for one another. Um, talk to each other. Work on your relationship. Really focus on that first year. Make it through that first year. Um, there are also some other specific issues in terms of people who are remarried um, that, they need, that you would need to address in really trying to form a strong marital bond. Um, the first is living arrangements. So a lot of times people who, are, who get remarried come from like one person having a house and another person having a house and one or the other moving in. Well, it's really helpful if you can create a space that's yours together. So it's ours. Now, it may be possible for you guys to buy a new place and move into that together. If you can, that's great. If you can't, and you have one person has to move into the other person's place, then try your best to make it yours together. Maybe that means redecorating somehow or rearranging the rooms so that it's it's ours. It's not his or hers. And the same goes with finances. And Scott talked about this last week with having like his and her money. Again, make it yours together. Share that resource so that you can build your relationship together. Um, I found another study that was really interesting, and it actually showed that remarried families who have a one-pot approach to their money report more happiness. So if you can pool your resources, share them together, and look at them as yours, that can be really helpful. Um, and then it's also helpful to come up uh, with a parenting plan if there are children who are um, who are you know joining you in the remarried family um, from previous relationships. Uh, it's helpful for 
for the biological parent to the, to especially during the first couple of months to do the primary parenting and for the step parent to work on building the relationship. So the step parent shouldn't be thinking a lot about I have to be parenting, I have to be doing this the first couple of months. The step parent really needs to work on forming the relationship with the kids. And then actually that was the next kind of part I was going to talk about raising kids both with your ex and with um, a remarried partner. So first, um, raising kids in family life in terms of co-parenting with your ex, the best thing to do is to try to minimize conflict as much as possible. Kids do not do well in atmospheres where they're exposed to a lot of conflict. So try to minimize that. Maybe that means adjusting how you do drop-offs and pickups, or um, maybe it means just really not talking a lot, but just try to minimize the conflict when you are with your ex. And in addition, don't denigrate your ex. Don't talk badly about them in front of your kids. That's really harmful. It's not really fair. They still have a relationship with their parent, um, regardless of the fact that, you know, it's, it's a hurtful situation maybe for you. But um, try not to, to talk bad about them. It's also helpful to know that kids can, um, they can sometimes act differently after, after being with their, their, their other parent and they come back into the home with you. So this is a normal thing. I think sometimes people assume, oh, well, okay, that means that, you know, my ex must have been speaking badly about me. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, kids are going through the transition too, and it's hard for them. And so it can be difficult to come back, you know, to stay with one parent and then come back to the other. So I would just encourage you to know that that's normal and to not assume the worst about it. Um, and if you can, try to minimize big life changes right after divorce as much as possible. I know that big life changes go along with divorce. I know that often means moving out. It means sometimes it can be meaning remarrying really quickly or having a big financial financial change. But if you can try to minimize that or space that out, it will help kids. Because uh, kids, uh, when they're faced with a lot of those big life changes, like all at once, it can really be hard on them. It can really increase kind of the risk for the bad outcomes for them. So if you can space those things out, that would be helpful. Um, and speaking to step parents, um, people who are who who their um, their spouses have brought kids into the marriage. Um, I mentioned already about really trying to form relationships with those kids first, instead of immediately getting into the parenting role. Um, but also. I would encourage you to be fair. Um, kids do best when they have access to both of their biological parents, and step parents control that access. You do control that access for at least one of them. So try to be fair and realize that the kids really benefit best when they can be with both parents. And, you know, just think about their well-being. Um, and the last thing I wanted to leave off with is just to encourage you guys, if you've been divorced, to not buy into the lie that the church sometimes propagates that you're somehow a second-class citizen or that your worth is affected. Psychologically speaking, your worth is not affected after divorce. And from my personal standpoint, I don't think your worth is affected before God. closing, I want to um, point out something to you that you maybe have never noticed before. I actually never noticed it until last night. I was looking through this red Bible, and the very last thing that you see in these red Bibles is a list of promises from the Bible. Sometimes these, these lists of promises can be, you know, from an academic standpoint, I don't always like them. I'll just say that. But these are really good Bible verses. 
nonetheless. And um, there's lots of those little one-off verses, which again, I'm not a fan of. But one of the, uh, one of the promises that's, that's listed there is Ephesians 2.8. And so I want to read to you the verses, Ephesians 2.8, but also the few verses that precede it. Um, so I'm going to read two, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And I'd really love to ask you to hear this in the deepest place of your heart, especially if you've been through uh, really terrible destruction in relationships, including divorce. But for all of us, on some level, we need to hear these words. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. And here's... Artisan Church's life verse, actually. I'm going to keep going here. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And some translations say that we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So you may be struggling with profound guilt in your life, whether it's because of something dumb you did in a marriage that ended it, or whether it's because you didn't do something dumb and your marriage ended and you feel guilty because you participated in that. Maybe it has nothing to do with marriage or relationships. It just weighs on you the wrong that you've done. And these verses, I think, are the solution to that problem. To understand that it's through grace and faith that we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ, not by what we do ourselves. And that ought to be good news because what we do ourselves is so often way, way, way off the mark. And so, as we conclude our time looking at the Word today and transition to uh, the table of the Lord, I want to invite you to embrace that faith. And for A lot of you in the room, this will be uh, just a a reassurance, kind of a a re-upping, a a reaffirmation of a faith that you've had for a long time. And participate in this this sacrament of the church to receive Christ's body and blood in the form of these elements, bread and, and in the cup. Remembering his sacrifice for you and receiving it for yourself in faith accepting the grace that's offered to you. There may be people in the room who have never taken that step of faith. You've hung around at a church, maybe this one, for a while, and uh, it's never been real to you, and right now it's kind of getting real. And so I want to invite you, maybe for the first time, or for the first time it would ever be meaningful, to participate in communion with us uh, as an act of accepting in faith that grace that's offered to you. Uh, and if, if that's something that's, that's changing in your life right now, I would really love it if you would share that with us. 
and I'm not going to ask you to stand up or anything, but um, catch me afterward. Talk to me. Or if you'd like to, you can just write it down on an info card and tell me what happened and, and put it in the offering plate later, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk over email or phone this week. But um, regardless of where you are, if you hear the, hall, the call of God in your life beckoning you with that grace, Now's the time to respond in faith, and we're going to continue in worship with my deep apologies to the band um, for having gone long. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to cut the work that you prepared. <laughs> um, we're going to continue in worship for a few more minutes, and if you're a parent, please apologize to the teacher when you go pick up your children, because they're probably like, oh, when is he going to finish? Okay, they're having fun. Then, okay. <laughs> um, but this table is open, and God's call is, uh, is open and is being spoken to you now, and uh, I'd ask that you respond accordingly as we continue in worship this morning. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.